Hello, and welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And in this installment, we are just two podcasters in the big city, learning about archaeology and a little about ourselves along the way. Uh, no, but for, but for real, we're talking about archaeology and cities. We probably aren't going to learn anything about ourselves over the next no, hour. No, I think, but I don't no. know. We'll see. I've been having a week, so maybe I will. Maybe this is something you've thought about before, but maybe not. But humans have building have been building places to live on top of. Pre- Pla- building places to live on top of previous occupations. Okay. It's a poorly worded sentence. I'm sorry. Maybe this is something you've thought about before, but maybe not. But. In case you haven't thought about this before, uh, humans have been building places to live on top of previous occupations for basically forever. Uh, we've we've discussed this before with mm-hmm. with Brenna. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, way way back. Gosh, way way back. So many so many structures ago. So I did way that back. So many that layers. Mm-hmm. Um, so. When you translate that to a modern city environment with every big construction project and sometimes small construction projects, (laughs) you've got the possibility of encountering evidence of those previous occupations. Right. That's that's what we're talking about today. Yeah, that's what we're doing. And one of the major aspects of this process, particularly in, though not limited to, the U.S., is the laws and practices around dealing with the rights of descendant communities or anyone who has a claim to recovered cultural materials. We'll deal with that a little bit in this episode, but it's not going to be the main point. This isn't a law podcast. Instead, we're going to do a bit of a roundup of urban archaeology projects from different places in the world, the interesting things that have been found as a result of urban archaeology, and some cool examples of related public outreach. Also... We should mention that way, way back, a million years ago, on episode 76 of this very podcast, we talked to archaeologist Kimberly Moran about the Arch Street Project right here in Philadelphia. Um, So you can check out that episode for more of the unique story of the First Baptist Church Cemetery in Philly. Yeah, we should probably start by actually defining urban archaeology. Uh, Urban doesn't necessarily mean skyscrapers. Um, nor are we using it in the like mid nineties euphemistic sense. <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> uh, but we are talking about sites that cover a lot of ground and are densely populated. Uh, lots of people in the same place usually means some kind of hierarchy and infrastructure, uh, but maybe not just hang on to that for a little mm. bit later. Archaeology can piece together some of the social structures and what urban life was like in any given Herb. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, urban archaeological practices and the laws that regulate them, if there are any, uh, vary depending on where in the world you are. In the U.S., urban archaeology often takes place ahead of construction projects. Federal law dictates that any major construction project must first do a survey on site to determine whether any historically imp- important materials might be disturbed in the process of construction. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a whole field of archaeology in itself. The folks who do that, that survey and excavation work, um, that's CRM, that's cultural resource management and CRM extends beyond things that are under the ground. Uh, also things that are already on the ground. Yeah. Historical like preservation. 
Okay. Yeah, all of those things. Um, it's especially important given the number of indigenous descendant communities whose cultural material or spiritually important places or burials could be harmed. Uh, the U.S. is, of course, not the only place with descendant communities directly tied to archaeological material. But again, different countries have different laws. Um, some great examples of curated material and outreach from urban archaeology projects in the U.S. include uh, the African Burial Ground Project, uh, which is in uh, New York City, um, which uh, is... Uh, part of the portfolio of the work mm -hmm. of our past guest, friend of the show, and extremely cool um, biological anthropologist, Dr. Rachel Watkins. Um, Maybe she's listening. Hi. Hi, Rachel. I owe you an email. So I'm going to quote from the website of the New York Preservation Archive Project. NIPAP. Uh, quote, in 1990, the General Service Administration... Uh, the GSA, oh, gosh, I know them, began construction on a 34-story office tower and four-story pavilion on the site at 290 Broadway. The property belonged to the federal government. Therefore, GSA had to comply with Section 106 mitigation of the National Historic Preservation Act, which legally enforced historic and archaeological investigations prior to construction. When excavations began in July 1991, several skeletal remains were recovered. One year later, 390 burials were removed. The local African-American community, along with preservationists, became concerned about the preservation of the cemetery and the skeletal analysis conducted at Lehman College. The remains were relocated to Howard University's Department of Anthropology. Dr. Michael L. Blakey led the, the analysis conducted by the Howard University's team of physical anthropologists. The Howard team discovered, after years of analysis and historical and genetic research, a plethora of information about 18th century slavery in New York City, a subject that had not been well documented in the past. They found that there was a distinction between African-born and American-born slaves. The skeletal remains showed some individuals with filed teeth and hourglass shapes, which is a cultural tradition prevalent in West Africa. Several female burials indicated rings on the base of the skull due to carrying heavy workloads on their heads, another West African tradition. Since documents about slavery in the North during the 18th century are scarce, the African burial ground serves as an important reminder that slavery was prevalent in all the colonies, end quote. Yeah. Um, which is, is something that I think, um, you know, the sort of the, the average uh, white person, uh, maybe like I don't, the average sure. person who yeah. doesn't give much thought to the history and legacy of slavery, mm -hmm. um, they may only think about um, slavery in all of the colonies or slavery north of the Mason-Dixon line in the context of um, when someone, uh, when, it, when a group uh, talk about like taking the name or image off of a building at an Ivy League school because they were like, right. a slaver right. and like sl or slaveholder. And, but there's, there's, that doesn't really like continue forward to realize that it was, um, the labor of enslaved individuals who, uh, built, physically built these institutions and, um, and a lot of, um, a, a lot of things in, in the North, mm. uh, TM, but, uh, 
yeah, so this is, it's really an incredible project and, and tremendously valuable. And uh, if you want to learn more, you can listen to our episode with Rachel Watkins. Um, <laughs> you can. And you, uh, check you out also, the show notes. So grab your lobster rolls and <laughs> we're shipping up to Boston. Um, so I, listeners may remember, new listeners, hey, uh, I grew up near Boston and would occasionally go into the city with my parents. And I have vague childhood memories of the traffic detours, mostly the parental grumbling around the traffic detours related to the big dig. I think somewhere around Haymarket. That's that's where I remember this happening. Where's that? I'm kind of a Boston truther. I'm not convinced. That Boston exists? Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I've, I mean, I've been there once, but still. Don't please don't give me any more existential crises. <laughs> Just where I, was I, I for know. seven years? People people talk about it. Uh, <laughs> one of my major life traumas is because oh, of true. Boston. I feel like I mean, feel like it's one there. Of mine too. So yeah, you know, well, different one. <laughs> All right. So officially, the name was the big. See, we are learning about ourselves along the way. I <laughs> know. Uh, Nobody wants this. The name really was the big dig, uh, but also the Central Artery Tunnel project catap uh it took interstate 93 the main highway that used to run at street level and across overpasses through the city underground into a huge tunnel uh this is from a 2006 article in the boston globe i'm paraphrasing the big dig began in 1982 and was the most expensive highway project in the united states it was plagued by huge overshots of budget delays leaks design flaws use of substandard materials criminal charges and arrests, and even the death of one motorist, which is truly awful. The project was originally scheduled to be completed in 1998 at an estimated cost in 1982 dollars of $2.8 billion. So adjusted f- as of 2020, that's $7.4 billion. Instead, the project was completed in December 2007 at a cost of over $21.5 billion in 2020 dollars so they whiffed past the budget by almost 200 percent 1000 oh i did a bad math did i do a bad math they whiffed past yeah. the budget by almost oh by a thousand percent yep i did a bad billion math. is one thousand percent of two so billion. that's not great but there's a lot of archaeology to talk about which is great for our purposes uh, there will be a link in the show notes to a little guidebook that goes along with the permanent exhibit Highway to the Past, the Archaeology of Boston's Big Dig. It's freely available. Neat resource. Uh, highlights of the materials found at the excavation include a lot that um, pertains to the history of glassmaking in South Boston. There was a, a lot of glass factories. So you got a lot of like those uh, old timey patent medicine bottles and cologne bottles and, you know, bottles that you put things in. Um, and of course, lots and lots of indigenous artifacts. Um, those, if you, uh, now I can't remember, I should have looked this up. Um, one of the downtown tea stations, I, th- I want to say it's Boylston, but I'm not sure, has a, a big kind of plaque, a big sign when you, when you exit the train, um, and it talks about some of the indigenous artifacts. Could do more, but, you know, it's there. The One of the neat things I found was this um, tavern that was found in Charlestown, the Three Cranes, which dates to 1629. 
quoting from an article, a Boston University article, uh, because the state archaeologist Joe Bagley is a graduate of BU. The first stone foundations of the Three Cranes Tavern, along with its wine cellar, the Longhouse, which is what they call the structure where the tavern owners lived, the privies, uh, the under portion of an outhouse. Oh, so the hole. Yeah, the hole and the insides. Um, and it says, archaeologists are especially fond of privies. I don't know if I would say that. Uh, because besides their more mundane function, they were used to dispose of household garbage. Today's archaeological gold. Personally, I'm scared of them because my brother told me when we were in the, like, when we were, like, camping in the forest mm-hmm. um, in the 90s before they installed, like, real bathrooms into mm-hmm. the forest, uh, that snakes lived out there and they were going to come up and bite my butt. It's always, a, it's always something to consider. Archaeologists found elaborate redware pottery, wine bottles, a bone butchered from a fine cut of sheep, and perhaps most interesting, the bowl from a clay pipe. So they're just like sitting there like eating, eating mutton on the toilet. I mean, we've all yep. been there. Yeah. We've, oh, we've all had a night like that. <laughs> we've all been there. <laughs> uh, but the pipe, the pipe is interesting and sort of like, oh, come on. State archaeologist Joe Bagley says this particular status-rich pipe would have had a stem that was two to three feet long. One of those those little, like, meerschaum yes. clay bottoms, and then you just kind of extend it. A statement pipe? A statement pipe. And he says, quote, very male. And you oh. can see faintly the lion and the unicorn from the crest of the British crown. So, so is this that's, like the, that's his quote. This is like the 17th century equivalent of, like, a lift kit on your truck? No, like this is a 17th century masculinity. No, this is the equivalent of wearing a Yankees cap into a Boston pub. Um, he points out, Joe Bagley points out that because the pipe oh. was found in a privy dating between 1765 and 1775, just before the Revolutionary War, so when all of this dissatisfaction with the the crown and uh, with, the, with the taxes. taxation, yeah, with the taxes, with the taxes. Not much else, with the, the taxes. taxes. Yeah. Uh, smoking a pipe with the British crown on it was basically saying, I support the crown, which was <laughs> basically <laughs> basically saying, uh, and it would have been a big middle finger to every person in that tavern. So that's that's a thing that happened. Uh, or what I like to think happened is someone walked in with his statement pipe, realized that it was a poor idea and went, oh, no, oh, no, oh, no, and ran outside and threw it in the toilet. Yeah. Uh, so it was just an 18th century. And there was already swirly. a guy in there sitting with his oh, mutton. Well. Just like, not now. The other thing, I just wanted to share a term that I learned, um, which is that uh, in the 17th century, the Boston um, was kind of a different shape than it is now, just because uh, in modern day Boston, Beacon Hill, it was built up from land dredged from the Charles River Bank. So like the coastline mm-hmm. changed okay. and like, where BU is now would have been the Charles River, but at land has been added there too. Um, but down where the harbor was um, at the 17th century shipping docks, they made these things called corduroy roads, which are just um, extensions of the shoreline or the, you know, the, the dock um, made from tree logs, tree logs, made from logs. Come on, Anna. Um, <laughs> but like in the way that, if you're going on a hike and like the whoever's maintaining the trail has put down logs to cover like a really the teens, the teens, the teens have put down uh, logs the to American cover like a boggy, yep. a boggy patch. Yeah. Uh, 
corduroy roads because of the, the ridges. I thought that was neat. Well, how evocative. I'm just thinking about the smell. Oh, docks anywhere often are a little stinky, but 17th century docks? Oh, boy. Well, speaking of stinky. (laughs) Good segue. I I regretting suggesting this topic. (laughs) It's just so sensory. Um, One of the big things that can define an urban area is the planning and engineering around sanitation. Mm. Uh, Lots of people crowded into an area means lots of waste. Lots of waste just sitting around means stinky uh, and bacteria, parasites, disease, and a one-star Yelp review. Is this a reference to something? Nope. Is there something just like... No, just... you You went to the bagel shop and there was a lot of waste around and you're like... I was also one just star. kind of thinking about our pals at One Star Archaeology. Aww. At the Harappan site of Mohenjo-Daro, for example, the sewer system dates to around 4,500 years ago. Uh, so uh, paraphrasing here from a 2004 article titled, The Basis of Civilization, Water Science? Mm? Water Science. <laughs> uh, it does sound so- a little hand-wavy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that that seems like what you would call dousing. Like that's what the military Water would call dousing. dousing. Yeah. yeah. Sewage ran through underground drains built with precisely laid bricks. The city's water supply was managed with the system of aqueducts, thus separate from the wastewater. It's important. Which is key. Mm-hmm. You don't want your... Mm-mm. Mm-mm. You don't. You're chunky and you're smooth. <laughs> I am dysentery interested, interested in um, discussing so in that the, further. In the drainage systems, drains from houses were connected to wider public drains laid along the main streets. So the drains had holes. So uh, picture a city manhole cover, mm-hmm. which were used for cleaning and inspection to go, oh, there's mm-hmm. poop in there. Um, <laughs> Check. Though the water from bathrooms on the roofs and upper stories was carried through enclosed terracotta pipes or open chutes that emptied into street drains. Uh, so, you know, still, still stinky, mm-hmm. but less cholera. Ideally. Which is what yeah. you should be looking for. I mean, what you With should your, be looking to avoid. Well, you should be looking for less cholera. Yes. So if you're house hunting, folks, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. make sure mm-hmm. you ask your realtor, what's the cholera sitch here? You know what they say about real estate location, 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 less cholera. <laughs> so a bit later, 4,000 years ago, uh, there was also sewage management systems in what is today China. Um, but would you look at that? There are some newly published archaeology on that very topic. But is it a city? Uh, let's find out. Um, I think you're going to so, like this one. I picked this. I, I, I hope, hopefully, I, you will like it. I picked it for you. <laughs> That's what you say when you give me gifts. I hope you like it. Uh, so this comes from uh, Sci News. Um, um, and the article title is 4,000-year-old ceramic drainage system discovered in China. Uh, and so quoting, the late Neolithic 
Ping Liang Tai walled site demonstrates how environmental vagaries, technological innovations, and social institutions converge to form a, quote, cooperative social government. Do you like my gift? Yes. <laughs> Do you like my gift yet? <laughs> On water management, which provides a different model for the origins of hydrosociality <laughs> in ancient East Asia. Is that what they call gathering around the water cooler? <laughs> hydrosociality. <laughs> Ah, that's like the the opposite of what like re- these reports are supposed to do. <laughs> They're supposed yeah, to like instead of it, this isn't science communication; it's science obfuscation. It is. It's just like <laughs> someone smearing mud on the windshield. Just like come or, on, you're supposed to make it mud. Come on, <laughs> you're supposed to make the paper easier to understand. So, I mean, we'll. We'll get this the rest great. of the story, but like... The- I'm, already, I'm already into it. All right. So great. the site is located in what is now the Wahyang district of Zhoku, city in central China. During the Neolithic times, the town was home to about 500 people with protective earthen walls and a surrounding moat. Oh, sounds nice. Mm. The area's climate 4,000 years ago was marked by big seasonal climate shifts where summer monsoons would commonly dump half a meter of rain on the region monthly. Okay, well, swings and roundabouts. Yeah. Uh, made by interconnecting individual segments, the water pipes run along roads and walls to divert rainwater. Oh, like storm drains. So mm-hmm. that's, yeah. Uh, while there was some variety in decoration and styles, each pipe segment was around was about 20 to 30 centimeters in diameter, and about 30 to 40 centimeters long. Numerous segments were slotted into each other to transport water over long distances. What's surprising to the archaeologists is that the settlement itself shows little evidence of social hierarchy. It housed its houses. <laughs> its houses were uniform. Its houses were uniformly small and show no signs of social stratification or significant inequality amongst the population. Despite the apparent lack of a centralized authority, the town's population came together and undertook the careful coordination needed to produce the ceramic pipes, plan their layout, install and maintain them, a project which likely took a great deal of effort from much of the community. The level of complexity associated with these pipes refutes an earlier understanding in archaeological fields that holds that only a centralized state power with governing elites would be able to muster the organization and resources to build a complex water management system. While other ancient societies with advanced water systems tended to have a stronger, more centralized governance or even despotism, uh, Ping... Ping Liang Tai demonstrates that it was not always needed, and more egalitarian and communal societies were capable of these kinds of engineering feats as well. End quote. Um, yes. Yeah. Um, see, that's why so, I yeah, thought you would well, like this. No, I do like this. I like this a lot, and and also I think that um, there's a few things to think about here, in addition to just like kind of the facts on the ground of like what's like what. Well, like what they're the archaeologists are kind of seeing in this and just thinking mm-hmm. about like man you know just like it'd be so nice you just like vibe and stay dry with your comrades oh what a that's like what i'm looking for um but there's that but but there's also this idea no of comrades nobody likes a damn comrade <laughs> like that's but um comrade. but this beef. um that's me it's gotta be I'm a, like I'm a pretty clam, clammy comrade right um, now. Yeah. But um I know thinking about 
Um, and this is, you know, this, this idea of that, that kind of, um, linear progression, like the, the march of civilization that we're like yeah. building towards something like that's something that, um, a lot of folks who work in archeology span in a lot of parts of the world already know is, uh, nonsense. And that like model. It, yeah. Yeah. That it's like really like it's it's real it's like incomplete like it's inaccurate um but it also is kind of self-limiting and so i wonder um how if if we were if um if one were to turn one's attention to these sort of imperial cores and these sort of sites of urbanism and like urbanization Mm -hmm. um if they were looking at it with like a different lens or like having gotten their training in different departments and then Mm. come to apply it here that they might be seeing a bit more texture uh, in the trajectory of these things than, um, than sort of uh, what the, the the kind of um, like the canon as it were would, would say about this. Uh, But also I love that you included this because um yeah, we're, we t- we're talking about things that we find like under cities, but like this one allows us to think about like, uh, like what, what is a city? And also like, is city the goal? Right. Um, like maybe you're just trying to vibe and put your water where you want it, you know? Yeah. And less cholera, like. Location, location, less cholera. I can't even less cholera. <laughs> Cauliflower. Uh, all right. Where um, else are we going? Well. Oh, no. We're going dark is where we're going. We're going a little dark. Yeah. Oh, so man. this is this is the, the dip in the episode. Um, and we need a bit of historical background for this one. Uh, content warning, medieval genocide. So we are in England. Clifford's Tower is a part of a now-ruined medieval Norman castle in what is today the city of York, England. It was also still the city of York in 1190 CE, very old city, when an anti-Semitic riot erupted and the entire Jewish population of York, around 150 people, were killed after taking refuge in Clifford's Tower. So, for kind of chronological context, this was at the peak of Crusade Frenzy, Richard I was the king of England. That's Richard the Lionheart. Uh, Extremely crusady. And he was about to go barging into the Holy Land. And there was even more anti-Muslim and anti-Jewish sentiment than usual, which was Um, an extra lot. And also, uh, if this was in 1190, Mm -hmm. this is only about 50 years after William of Norwich. Are you familiar with William of Norwich? I feel like I should be. So William of Norwich was a little boy, uh, an English boy who uh, went, he was like 12. Um, But yeah, he went missing um, and was um, presumably murdered. But his his family and community blamed the Jewish community. And that was the first claim of blood libel and the idea of blood libel where um, the matzah is made is 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 made with the blood of children and so there's Christian a children dr- specifically right yes 
Yeah. Yes. But there is a, um, a like a direct intellectual lineage from the William of Norwich story and, uh, from 1144 to the like adrenochrome um QAnon conspiracies of today. This idea of um, of adrenochrome and uh, and like the elites drinking blood um, is a uh, going on nine hundred year old conspiracy theory, and so this is so and like nobody did anti semitism the way the English did for a long time. Um, and Case so you've point. got like the, the one, two punch of, um, you know, trying to claim the Holy land and, and then. The, and this is the just like over story. time, this is like building and building and building in the various communities. Cause keep in mind that news doesn't travel as quickly uh, in the middle ages as, as it does now, but it sure did travel. I hate that that's the thing that I like can contribute to this episode. It's valuable background um, and part of the rich tapestry. <sighs> um, so, there, you know, it was crusade times, a lot, a lot of anti-Muslim, anti-Jewish sentiment. Uh, legally, Jews were or should have been protected as the king's vassals. Now I say vassals, this it roughly means that the king thought of the local Jews as his property. Um, they were useful in the crafts that they made and the, the offices that they held. Yeah. Um, Which itself was the result of like structural yeah. inequalities and uh, shunting them into specific roles in societies that Christians weren't allowed to hold. Mm -hmm. And then realizing like, oh, dang. Like they, <laughs> <laughs> there's value in that. Yeah, part of that um, relationship, the you know, the it's supposed to be a two-sided relationship. If the Jews are the king's vassals, he is obligated as king to protect them. Uh, and so, when these anti-Semitic feelings kind of started bubbling into riots and acts against the local Jewish community in York. Um, the population sought refuge in the Royal Tower, Clifford's Tower. The tower was besieged and set on fire. Many of the people inside took their own lives, but anyone who didn't was killed. Uh, and it's an extremely dark chapter of an already dark medieval history as it relates to anti-Semitism and sort of anti anybody who isn't Christian sentiment. Um, and for obvious reasons, the 1190 massacre sort of looms over any other Jewish history in the city of York. And so is that, is this, is this, uh, does this qualify, qualify as a pogrom? Or like a pogrom? Um, uh, like, is that, I don't know what the qualifications are as a like pogrom. It's, it's a, a deliberate massacre of a big number of people. <laughs> Um, um, so it's, it's, uh, it comes from Russian and, yeah. uh, it's a violent riot incited with the aim of massacring or expelling an ethnic minority religious group, particularly Jews. So, um, there so was it, an expulsion later. Um, okay. I'm but not this, sure that this, this had been a, that intent. I think this was just a riot that spiraled. 
or sort of what's spiral but out spiraled out yeah it okay it went kinetic yeah sure <laughs> um so okay. the de- i mean so there wasn't like a there wasn't like a reason I mean, like there, there was, was. <laughs> there was like these people were wealthy and held, you know, held certain um, positions in society. And that was a subject of discontent for the local uh, Christian population. But um, hmm. we know a lot of this thanks to urban archaeology. And when I say this, I mean sort of the bigger context of the story, because you have this event that is incredibly traumatic for a group of people, and that trauma kind of echoes through the entire history of that place, because for a really long time, I mean, England expelled the Jews, right? But then they came back for a while, but York especially was thought of as a place not to go. And so there's sort of that just sort of big, I don't know, sort of monolithic thing Mm -hmm. sitting in the timeline of medieval history in that area. But uh, recent urban archaeology projects have um, added a lot more nuance to that story and in a way have kind of, um, I hate saying this, but like prompted some healing So I'm going to excerpt here from a phys.org report. Research sheds new light on York's thriving medieval Jewish community. I mean, thriving for like a minute. Um, A team from the University of York's Heritage 360 Street Life Project has undertaken new research on the forgotten story of York's medieval Jewish community. Based on new archival evidence, the team have created digital reconstructions of the houses where the chief Jewish citizens of York lived. In a few decades after the 1190 massacre, from the 1210s until all the Jews were expelled from England in 1290, so we had a great 80 years, there was once more a thriving Jewish community living and working in the city in mostly harmonious relations with their Christian neighbors. So, 1190 to the 1210s, that's 20 years. So there's the, there was this devastating yeah. massacre. There's yeah. no more Jewish community in York. And then within a few decades, there's Jews living there again. Um, so researchers, among other things, have determined where the three main community leaders lived. Um, mm-hmm. One of these men, his name's Aaron, uh, had a synagogue at the back of his house, tucked away from view from the street for maybe obvious reasons. Um, no, would, if you have a synagogue at the back of your house, would he have been the rabbi or would he just have had like a bigger house that could, he, is that... he was very, very wealthy and okay. had the space for it. And I, I don't think he was the rabbi, but I believe okay. someone in his family was, I may be. So I may he be like converted that, yeah. his medieval rec room to. Yeah. <laughs> it's not a man cave. It's okay. a minion cave. Um, so these, <laughs> Thank you. Did that get you? <laughs> yeah. Just trying uh, to find some levity here. Yeah. Um, well, I, I will explain what a meaning okay. is in a minute. Um, but so these these men like bounce. Talk about bouncing back from um, yeah. the, from tragedy. These men were very wealthy and collaborated with the senior clergy of York Minster. So York Minster is like the ministry of York. It's like saying the the archdiocese of somewhere. Okay. Right. So like, is that 
like Westminster. is this is this what what flavor of Christian is this? I think at this time is, it's Catholic. Is this Catholic? It's not. When did Henry the When did Henry the Eighth get divorced? Man, I'm useless on this. So this is like a couple hundred years before the Anglican Church exists. So should be Catholic. And so these these wealthy sort of pillars of the Jewish community collaborated with the local Christian clergy to um, purchase. And I think by purchase it means like secure the funds for and have built. I don't think the building was there and they purchased it. I think they. They paid for it. <laughs> they didn't. They didn't call Berkshire Hathaway. They like, yeah, had it. Yeah, they no, yeah. I, they employed people to build it. Yeah. Um, the large stone building that would become the Guild Hall, which is like a civic center. It, like people it's where they have the youth basketball league. There. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, okay. <laughs> with an inflated pig bladder of some sort. Um, but maybe more importantly, the project is adding nuance to a history that has been dominated by this one unthinkably traumatic event for centuries. It's showing how the Jews of York lived, not just how most of them died. Yeah. Which is very important. Yeah. It, you know, it's, like that's, it, if you're seen as kind of a, a statistic, right? Yeah. It or just like a, it's dehumanizing. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And it's sort of like when, when you look at um, the, the victims or in this, and it sort of, as the story continues, the survivors of an act of genocide, if you only see them in their capacity as being like on the, um, the receiving end of an act of genocide, you are furthering the goals of that act of genocide because you yeah. are dehumanizing them. Right. And, and so that's, this is, yeah, this is really valuable work. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to quote here from an article in the Times of Israel. And so I want to flag that because not an unbiased source. <laughs> but I wanted in this instance, I wanted this specific perspective. Yeah. Um, oh, and so, yeah. I mean, they really do like the takes machine go burr. But, yeah. Um, oh, you'll see. We'll, but this, we'll get to that. This, okay. this, this also, this excerpt includes like the most Jewish kind of throwaway comment you could possibly have, <laughs> at least to, like, I, it resonated with me specifically. Okay. okay. So, quote, until as recently as 20 or 30 years ago, there was a veritable harem or boycott on York. Like not a not an official one, but again, like that word of mouth, like, don't like that. Don't, no, no. Uh, so that started to change in 1978 when the UK chief rabbi of the day, Emmanuel Jakobowicz, raised the issue in discussions with Christian leaders. Like, hey, York had not been entirely without Jews throughout the intervening centuries. After Oliver Cromwell sanctioned the readmission of Jews to England, like. <laughs> Oh, this is a real like onion. Scales and balances you know, has a good yeah. point. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Whoa. He did. He did that uh, in the 1650s. A handful of Jews came to the north, and more arrived in the late 1800s, setting up a synagogue above a carpentry shop. Um, numbers swelled a little too, with a World War II influx of Kinder transport refugees, of course. But by 1970, the community had declined to the point where a minion could no longer be mustered. So I'm not saying minion like the little yellow guys. I'm saying minion. Okay, yeah. (laughs) Mello. Um, (laughs) I do love the minions. Uh, But in this case, it is a word that denotes the number of men needed to uh, read from the Torah. So like if you are having a 
a hot Torah sesh, you have to have at least 10 men. And by men, it is males 13 and older. So once you once you have your big boy bar mitzvah, you can join the minion. Um, and so that that synagogue, uh, the Aldvark synagogue, has long been boarded up. Probably Aldvark. So, so the the um, so a minion is required to like run services. Um, it constitutes a representative community of Israel. For it's it's like a quorum necessary for a prayer session to start. You can't just like have three guys and call it a prayer session. I guess. I don't know. Maybe it counts more with God. I didn't. Mm. I didn't. I did not know that. Hmm. Today, though, the unspoken harem has evidently lapsed. There are an estimated 200 Jews living in the city, dozens of whom are affiliated with the community, specifically like the the worship community, um, which was founded six years ago. And here comes as of when Uh, a week and a half ago. Yeah, as of extremely recently. Um, and here's just this really, this really hit me. Um, <laughs> the community in turn is now trying to raise funds to hire, albeit half time, its own rabbi, York's first in eight centuries, which is wonderful, which is amazing. But I cannot not hear that in my grandmother's accent. Like, oh, they're hiring a rabbi, but only part time. They only have the money for halftime. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so um, the reason that it's called, what was it, like Street Life 360, Heritage 360 Street Life, uh, is because there are digital models that have been created oh, of these wow. houses, which you can visit. Uh, there is a, if, if you're in the city of York or parts around there, um, you can go visit the exhibit itself. Um, it is... There's a like a 3D exhibition on the street's Jewish history, uh, Coney yeah. Street in York. Um, but you can also view digital models. Ah. And the, they will be linked in the show notes. So that, yes, was, a, it's, you know, it's a, a record of a very dark time in, uh, in Jewish history specifically. But the importance of, of archaeology and in this case, urban archaeology and, and oh. archival research, which is becoming increasingly important to you, bud. <laughs> Uh, um, but just like the, the value, <laughs> well, in that. like the you know the the Jewish community of York, and then me. Like, yes, just, well, those are the, like, the two in that order. The two groups I interact <laughs> with. Um, I think that this case in particular speaks to the value of investigating the archaeologies and histories of traumas. Um, yeah, in order to humanize those who were affected yeah i think that yeah this is an uh um just as the um african burial ground like this is a way to you know whereas there we're looking at the the physical remains of these people and um in york we're looking at the sort of like um structural uh and historical yeah yeah um yeah so um this is our last is our last one no it's our, our second to, example. Penultimate and and this is a tone shift. <laughs> Just okay. let's Okay, cool. Something different. <laughs> All right. Um uh, and now for the most metal description of archaeological material we've had on the show for quite some time. But first, context. 
Oh, there's a there's a t-shirt. I'm gonna put put that on my in, Ray Dunn mug in wine ant font. Modern day Mexico City is built on top of an area that has been inhabited for a long time. The oldest human remains found their date to around 12,700 years ago. But that wasn't a city. It sure wasn't. By, any, by nope. anybody's. <laughs> nope. I'm just saying there have been people in the area for a really long time. Not just, um, they didn't just have like a city with one lady in it. Hi. <laughs> Hi. Welcome to my city. Uh, but the first city in the area was Tenochtitlan, built by the Mexica. That's what the people that we call Aztecs called themselves. Uh, that's also where Mexico comes from. Sure does. Uh, Tenochtitlan was built around 1325 CE and was the anchor for what would become the Mexica Aztec Empire. Uh, Tenochtitlan was both a political and religious center, and thousands of people would have turned up for rituals. Not turned up, <laughs> no. Uh, like the showed ones, up. Come on, like the ones that left behind the archaeological material that archaeologists have been finding for the past several years. Um, although excavations were paused after twenty nine the twenty nineteen season for a couple years because of COVID, the way you yeah. wrote it made it sound like they knew it was coming. Oh no, um, <laughs> I didn't I didn't mean it like that. I just gotta pack mean... it on up because in about six months. <laughs> also, when we say political and religious center, uh religion, belief, cosmology, that was all woven into the political system. Uh just like ours. Uh well, there wasn't separation of church and state, so to speak. Um uh nominally or otherwise. And the ritual deposits we're about to describe show that very clearly. Yeah. So quoting now from a report on Al Jazeera, an extensive cache of Aztec ritual offerings found underneath downtown Mexico City off the steps of what would have been the empire's holiest shrine provides new insight into pre-Hispanic religious rites and political propaganda. Sealed in stone boxes five centuries ago at the foot of the temple, the contents of one box found in the exact center of what was a circular ceremonial stage has shattered records for the number of sea offerings from both the Pacific Ocean and off Mexico's Gulf Coast. I didn't know there was a record. (laughs) Including more than 165 once bright red starfish and upwards of 180 complete coral branches. Which is tough because they're all of those are very brittle. In the same box, archaeologists previously found a sacrificed jaguar, uh, jaguar, jaguar. How do you say it? Kitty. Jaguar. I say jaguar. Jaguar. I have also heard people say jaguar and jaguar. Jaguar, dressed like a warrior associated with the Aztec patron Huitzilopochtli. The war and sun god. Previously unreported details include last month's, as of this month? Yep. All right. Discovery of a sacrificed eagle held in the clutches of the jaguar, along with miniature wooden spears and a reed shield found next to the west-facing feline, which had copper bells tied around its ankles. Chic. I, but not sneaky. Dingle, no. dingle, 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 That's dingle. <laughs> Oh, oh! I mean, the ha- 
They're terrifying. Yes. I went, I went, I read about, well, when I was, when I had COVID, I read the Wikipedia entry for every felid. I remember you texted me there. <laughs> and I and really didn't know what to do with that information. I, I was completely overwhelmed by how big jaguars are. They're so big. They're very big. Their paws are the size of my face. They're so big and deadly. Jingle. That's why you put Con- bells on them. Continue. Continue. Coming. I don't. Uh, uh, continuing with the quote. The aquatic offerings covering the jaguar may represent the watery underworld where the Aztecs believed the sun sank each night or possibly a part of the king's journey after death. Yeah, because there's something Mark- under the jaguar. There was they haven't excavated it yet. The half excavated rectangular box dating to approximately 1486 to 1502 CE now shows a mysterious bulge in the middle under the jaguar skeleton. Indicating something solid below. Yeah, so it's thought to be the remains. I I think it said cremains even, like the cremated uh, body of the the ruler who was in power at the time. So between 1486 and 1502. Not at that time. No, immediately before that time. (laughs) Ominous. The aquatic offerings covering the jaguar may represent the watery underworld where the Aztecs believed the sun sank each night or possibly a part of the king's journey after death. I I don't blame them for stopping their excavations. I I would have stopped too. Be like, that's that's how those movies start. Mm -mm. (laughs) (laughs) This layer's done. (laughs) Here's here's my locust sheet. I'm out. Layer. Just starfish. Joyce Marcus, an archaeologist specializing in ancient Mexico. I almost said Mexico. At the University of Michigan. (laughs) Says the recently unearthed offerings illuminate the Aztec, quote, worldview, ritual economy, and the obvious links between imperial expansion, warfare, military prowess, and the ruler's role, end quote, in ceremonies that sanctified conquest and allowed tributes to flow into the capital. Dang. Yeah. Sorry, I'm coming to you from through the mail. <laughs> uh, we've been, we, this whole time we've been alternating who's out of focus and who's in focus. So my, my camera's having a really rough time. Uh, I just, I thought the thing that was, in, stop it. <laughs> the, I thought the really interesting part was kind of the very overt combination of, of, like obvious propaganda i say obvious like this is an interpretation of archaeological material it's not necessarily obvious but like jaguar plus warrior plus eagle plus maybe emperor remains like and there's in every instance of a mexica aztec ruler there's this kind of propaganda right it's like all tied up in the public perception of the ruler it's all tied up in sort of maintaining whatever their version of of civic order was which was also like cosmological order yeah um okay so before we wrap up this extremely incomplete roundup because just just think how many cities we still haven't talked about gosh nearly all of them Um, (laughs) statistically all of them yeah uh none of them are ashurban nepal I want to just mention a place where I would like urban archaeology to happen because it's a unique sort of city. 
So Amber, yeah. if you've listened to the Bunta Vista bonus episode, Theophiles on Camp Century, I, you I may remember this, uh, yep, but, but for those of our listeners who have not, I will just give a very quick history because it's such an interesting story. What a disaster and a real lens into whatever prompts the decisions made by the U.S. Army. Oh, I know. I mean, yeah. I know. Yep. It's that. Okay, so here's the history. 1951, there was a NATO treaty signed between the U.S. and Greenland, allowing the army to build military bases in Greenland. So I guess uh, Denmark Mm. was probably a part of that, too. Oh, the yeah. Yeah. It wasn't. It wasn't Greenland. It, it wasn't Greenland. It was, yeah, U.S. and Denmark. Uh, construction on this military base in Greenland started in 1959, finished in 1960. And so this is from uh, the Atomic Heritage Foundation. Quote, Army engineers first used Swiss-made uh, Peter plows. Whatever. Who's he? Uh, I don't know. But he's Swiss. To dig deep trenches in the snow and ice. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Engineering precision. The trenches were then covered up with a roof of steel arches and topped with more snow. So this was like, we are constructing a military base. We are going to dig a trench in the snow and ice, put a little hat on it, and cover it with more snow. We made an igloo. We're going to nuke the abominable snowman. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of this was was in preparation for a huge nuclear missile program that never really. Yeah. To intercept the ICBMs. Mm hmm. Like that's. Yeah. Yeah. Which uh, which are intercontinental ballistic missiles. This was like right at the not the height, but the 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 ramp up to the height of the Cold War. Engineers set up prefabricated wooden buildings inside those trenches, leaving airspace on every side to minimize melting. Mm. The largest trench, known as Main Street, was more than a thousand feet long. The engineers drilled a (laughs) hole... It's like describing my hometown. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, but above the Arctic Circle. The engineers drilled a hole deep into the ice, constructing a well which provided 10,000 daily gallons of fresh water. Insulated, heated piping was installed for water and electricity while a series of escape hatches were also built in case of emergency. In case they uncovered the thing from the movie, the thing, the thing. Yeah. In the end, camp century consisted of 26 tunnels, almost two miles in total. It included dormitories, a kitchen, a cafeteria, a hospital, a laundry, a communication center, a recreation hall, a chapel, and even a barbershop. Um, the, the original plan was to build an additional 52,000 square miles of tunnels, which is three times the size of Denmark, with the possibility of extending it to 100,000 square miles. Dream big, America. The army planned to deploy 600 missiles, each four miles apart, in trenches similar to those at Camp Century. Uh, the project would have required 11,000 soldiers to live full-time under the ice. Now, this did not happen, thankfully. I mean, a lot of bad things about it did happen. But not that. Okay, so end quote. Here are the bad things. Uh, There's nuclear reactor (laughs) waste buried in there. Yeah. It's just frozen in the ice because they had a little, a little fun size nuclear reactor. uh, That was. Oh, this was the age for that. Mm, Sure was. Before like. And it it was installed and and worked for like six months. 
Oh, they they do work in other places. Um, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Oh, yeah they they do work and and continued to work in other places until uh, uh, Cole uh, regained mm-hmm. the throne as king. Indeed. Uh, but yeah, so, we just left left that there. It's fine. It's, it's underground. It's fine. Thanks. It's not going to melt. This is the light motif of the episode. Yeah, poop. Um, the- <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I would have said it more artfully, but no. It's- well, I'm a science communicator, and I'm about clear, I'm a, succinct I'm a science. I'm yeah. science obfuscating. <laughs> I went blurry again because <laughs> you waved your hand in front of the camera lens. Uh, okay. okay, we're doing great. Um, so this. Maybe unsurprisingly at all. This city had very bad sewage management because the engineers who designed the latrine system maybe didn't understand that warm human waste plus ice equals bad combo. Yeah, Um, we're warm on the inside. We are. And so is what comes out of us, you know, briefly until it reaches ambient temperature. But what it does when it hits ice is it melts that ice. And so when you have cesspool of of waste just kind of hanging there warmly uh it melts the ice and it keeps melting the ice just farther and farther down uh also there was little to no ventilation gross um but it's sort of you know abstractly in a in a sort of armchair archaeology kind of way i do wonder what it would what it would look like if it were excavated uh probably don't want to do that kind of brown don't want to go exposing that nuclear waste. Yeah, brown and yeah. nuclear. Thanks for listening, everybody. <laughs> I, yeah. I did my best. And you did a great job. Thank you. And I listeners. that reaffirmation as part of my salary for this show. Oh, good. I mean, that's, that's all, I need. all you're getting. Yeah, yeah. good. Just <laughs> need a little pat on the head constantly. Yeah, and, and listeners, um, get excited because... With this, with the end of this episode, it is officially time. It's coming. Spooky season. I will gird my loins. No, this one, this, it, these are mostly uppers. No way. Yeah, yeah. Incredible. Yeah. I just got real excited. These are mostly uppers. That's going to do it for this episode of Little Dirt in the Big City. Thank you for listening. We will see you soon uh, in your ears. It's been real. Yeah. Great kicking it with you. Bye.